This show is so off the rails. I love it. Hey there. Welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is December 22nd, 2020, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor here at 538. Joining me in New York City is senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil. Hi, Sarah. How's it going? Oh, you know, not bad. A couple days before Christmas. Love it. The best time of the year. <laughs> so, so true. And from Los Angeles is 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Hi, Jeff. Hello, Sarah and Neil. How, Hi, how's Jeff. It going? Happy holidays. Right back at you. <laughs> Thanks, Neil. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, Jeff, do you have all your Christmas presents spot for your, no. for your, well, for your children? Well, no. It's actually weird. Uh, I'm doing better than most years. Most oh. years, there's a lot of, like, frantic Christmas Eve running around, which, you know, I'm not running around anywhere these days. <laughs> um, all right. Let's start off by talking about our football survivor pool. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Let's, let's do that. Interesting choice. Let's, let's just, what let's happened just, this weekend? Let's just Anything get it out of the way. Anything interesting happen? Um, hey, your team won. I know. Look at that. Congratulations. It, it let's just call it what it was. The biggest Bad? NFL upset <laughs> since 1995 at least. <laughs> All right, that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, what are you going to do? Anyway, so your team won. So that's exciting. Yeah, it's great. And you know, half the fan base is having an existential crisis. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's been miserable. No one like, knows how to feel. It's I, the I, worst win in the history of the <laughs> franchise according to some. I just like the progression from we're going to draft the best quarterback to ever come out of college to maybe we should get an offensive tackle. <laughs> oh my god. Like the ta- and he's a good tackle, but but still that's a that's a a drop off in expectations. I think we can all agree. <laughs> um but the bigger but- problem besides losing the number 1 draft pick, Jeff, you lost wait, in the wait, survivor not, pool. Not, hold on. Okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That ran through my head. That wasn't the first thought that ran through my head. <laughs> it, but it was it? It was the second or the third. Oh, that's okay. nice. It was like, oh, we lost Trevor Lawrence. The franchise is ruined. Oh, we're not 0-16. I guess that's good. Oh, I lost Survivor. That was good progression. <laughs> <laughs> that, that sounds feels right. right. Actually, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, so there was that. <laughs> Jeff Jeff did not win this week. I also did not win because yeah, I... Yeah, what was up with that? Let's talk about that one. Oh, you know, the Steelers ruined my whole plan for how I was going to finish this year in the Survivor Pool. Um, that's Let's what's that really Let that be a important. lesson. Never plan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's 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 a sad lesson to take from this. <laughs> yeah, the Steelers, man, are they gonna win a playoff game? Maybe, maybe not. I, see, huh? I feel a little vindicated because you know I was definitely down on them a lot, even on this pod. I think there's a difference between saying, "Hey, Pittsburgh is not really worthy of an 11 and 0 record," and then, "Hey, Pittsburgh's gonna lose to the Bengals and Ryan Finley." <laughs> Like that, that, that was a, that, that was a shocker. I, even though I didn't think the Steelers were great, I was still pretty surprised by that one. Yeah. It just seems like they peaked at the wrong time. They peaked mm-hmm. early. You, what you want to do is peak late, which the Ravens might do if they're able to make the playoffs. I like yeah. the Ravens. I, prefer- uh, I mean, it helps that I picked them and they've 
rolled over. Well, who who did they even beat? The Jaguars, Jacksonville, yeah. who uh, oh, well, needs to win a game. Come let's on, be guys. honest. Yeah. Come on, need a big win. I prefer. Yeah, teams. you've become the biggest Jaguars fan on the planet. Oh, I've been uh, that way for a few weeks now. Yeah. You know? All right. Well, so the 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 most important part of all of this, the survivor pool, now stands with Neil in the lead again. Frustratingly, at eleven points, Sarah at ten, Jeff at nine. Uh, the order this week is me, Jeff, Neil. So the Steelers really did screw up my plan here because I was thinking going into week 16, the Chiefs would still have something to play for. Technically, they could still lose the first round by if like a, a series of unfortunate events happened. But um, they're at like 97% in our model, 99% in our model, something dumb like that. Um, so I was going to take the Chiefs, obviously, this week. But I still kind of have to because the I uh, just kind of have to. So I'm gonna stick with the Chiefs and hope that they um, hope that they beat the Falcons, even though they don't really need to. So Chiefs for me. Who you got, Jeff? Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna take the Browns. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right back at it. Nice. There's no way this team is winning two games in a row. No. I'll tell you that much. No, You thought never. they were tanking against the Raiders. <laughs> now their backs are against the wall. Um, I also think the Browns, you know, I've been down on the Browns quite a bit, but they're pretty good. Eh, they're fine. <laughs> <laughs> Beat the Giants. They're they fine. Look good. They looked good against the Giants. I don't well, there know you if go. I buy you this. They're says. a better team without Odell Beckham narrative but they certainly look like a better team without Odell Beckham (laughs) sometimes we love our narratives all right Neil who do you have oh man I'm in such a bind here uh in terms of who I can pick uh and who I have not already picked because I think uh I I wouldn't have even been able to take the Browns even if um if Jeff had not picked them so now I'm sort of like do I do I put my faith in the Jaguars and I kind of feel like I should, but they are playing the Bears, and uh, the Bears are on the road. Ah, uh, do I trust Mitch Trubisky? He's been playing better <laughs> recently. Uh gosh, this is just a terrible choice. I'm going to take the Bears. All right, I on the road. That. That's so terrible. I, I mean, mean it, it's the Bears. It's the Bears. That's what I mean, freaks me considering out. On the road. My- my place in this game depends on you having to lose. I feel like. Like the Bears give me the best possible option in this scenario. So, yeah, I love it. On today's show, we'll talk about our brand new NBA predictions, what's changed with our Raptor metric, and what we're looking forward to this season. We'll also check in with college football now that the playoff is set and no one anywhere has feelings about it. Definitely not in Texas. And finally, we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. Last Thursday, we launched our NBA predictions for the 2021 season. We figured we'd take some of today to talk about what's changed, what our Raptor model is telling us about the start of the season, and what we're looking forward to seeing with basketball back. But we are, of course, not the only ones looking ahead. On the Athletics NBA podcast, J.A. Adande focused not just on the Lakers, who are favored by our model and many others to claim a repeat title. He was excited by the number of teams that are just trying to steal a phrase to build back better. I love that Phoenix doubled down and said, hey, the, the kids did all right. Let's bring in a veteran like Chris Paul and, and let, let's let's try to 
it seems like they aspire to be like a second round team, right? Like I don't mm-hmm. think anybody's talking championships in Phoenix, but they're trying to be a little bit better than they've been. They're, they're, like they're trying to make the playoffs, right? Right. Uh, and and I miss that. I miss teams that, <laughs> that set that as a goal. It's it's, it, it's become so all or nothing. Like everything else has been to the extremes in, in our country, right? And it's either you're going for a championship or you're tearing it down and, and you're trying to be in the lottery. Well, why not try to make the playoffs? And maybe if you have a really good season, the second round. Like, I, I think the Suns would be ecstatic with a second round appearance, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm all for that. I'm all for <laughs> it. Let's celebrate a, a second round appearance. Okay, so I want to talk first about what happened with our model between the end of last season, like 72 days ago, and now. We may have mentioned on the show that things were maybe a little off with our model <laughs> during the playoffs. Maybe, maybe just a little. Uh, Neil, walk us through what happened and what has changed. Yeah, so uh, as the playoffs went on last year, uh, we, we talked about this at the time. There was a distinct lack of faith in the Lakers for some reason and uh, a lot of faith in the Heat and also the Celtics. I don't know what it was about the East, but um, at the time we were using this model called Predictive Raptor, uh, which which was a variant of our Raptor metric, which I cannot remember the um, acronym for, but uh, that's our NBA plus minus player rating metric uh, that basically to... In theory, to be more predictive, it downweighted lucky events and, uh, that, that uh, research has shown are not necessarily repeatable and upweighted some of the stuff that's more core to a player's performance going forward, in theory. However, in practice, it was... It didn't. It didn't work. Like it, it, frankly, did not work. So we wanted to kind of figure out um, what to do about that going forward in our very compressed uh, two-month off season. <laughs> and uh, we did a lot of research. Uh, I should say, uh, Jay Boyce, uh, one of our um, wonderful computational journalists here at uh, Five Thirty Eight, uh, and and Nate Silver. Uh, editor you, in chief of five thirty eight. You've <laughs> probably heard of him. Intern Nate Silver. Yeah, that's right. Uh, we we all kind of worked on uh, making bu- building back better with Raptor, uh, as you said, Sarah. And um, one of the things that we did was we tested what was better between Raptor and uh, like normal Raptor, the kind you can find on the site, the kind that you know measures a player's performance, and predictive Raptor. And contrary to what you might think from the predictive part of the name <laughs> Predictive Raptor, it did not do as well at predicting pretty much anything as normal Raptor did. So the big change for this year is we kind of punted Predictive Raptor. We might revisit it in the future. Uh, Nate had some thoughts on Twitter last week. Not those thoughts, The before that, uh, <laughs> about... Uh, <laughs> About how predictive Raptor, you know, might tell you something core about a player, but might not tell you how they fit in with a particular team, which might have caused the effect of Raptor being, be- you know, vanilla Raptor being better at, at predicting even out of sample, you know, results when a player is on a given team. Uh, but the upshot of all of it is that we dropped predictive raptor and we're just using straight up vanilla raptor, one raptor to rule them all. Uh, and so. When you go onto our player ratings page, onto our projections page, you can even go to GitHub and download the historical data of it. It's all the same metric, unified in in one place. Uh, and we think that's going to make things a lot better. Like for instance, the 
this may come as a surprise to everyone, but the Lakers had a better Raptor, vanilla Raptor, in the playoffs last year than the Miami Heat did. Even though their predictive Raptor was much lower, even after the end of the finals, uh, which I think was one of our many red flags. Uh, So that should make things better predictively. We also uh, made a few other changes. Uh, We found in our testing that if you take a team's talent in terms of Raptor, but also blend in its ELO rating, which is sort of the the classic 538 power rating for a team based on, you know, wins and losses and point margin and, you know, where the game was and stuff like that, uh, that a blend of those two things actually does the best job of predicting games going forward. And the blend is dictated by essentially how much roster continuity you have, which is kind of cool. So for teams that turned over their roster a lot, ELO doesn't really get much weight because we think it's more about the talent of the players than than about the track record of the team. However, for a team that has played together a lot a lo- for a long time, like the Heat, like the Pacers, some teams like that, uh, you get more weight on, on ELO because it's sort of like we know that this current core has been building up that rating uh, in in recent games uh we downgraded home court advantage at least as long as there aren't going to be fans in the vast majority of nba arenas uh it's only 75 percent of its usual level uh and we made some changes about how quickly raptor updates based on the in-season sample of uh that a player puts up which i think will also address some of the issues from the playoffs last year where we had players you know, kind of their their rating snapped to that predictive that kind of faulty predictive raptor rating really fast, uh, and so now it's going to be a little bit slower to um, to react, and it won't react at all in the first um, handful of games of the season. Uh, it'll take a hundred minutes for anybody's rating to budge at all from the preseason. So that's basically what we did, and we feel like these predictions are going to be a lot better. And you know, the the preseason predictions. I think are fine. They look uh, like what you would expect from you know any set of preseason predictions that we've done in the past. The real um, way that you'll see that these are better is as the season goes on, especially as we go into the playoffs. You'll you'll get to see um, uh, fewer weird results. I think. Yeah, you know, we the the model really wasn't wasn't that weird until the playoffs. I mean, the the favorites going into you know finishing up the regular season were. The Lakers and the Clippers and the Bucks, which like also passes the eye test, right? It was it wasn't until yeah. we got to the playoffs where we saw um saw the weirdness there. And and I should say too, we run methodology posts with our interactives with our, our predictions dashboards. So if you want to read basically everything Neil just said, it's all written out in a very long and thorough and I also wrote that. Yeah. <laughs> and formula laden um methodology post that um that really that digs into everything exactly what we're doing. Um all right, so so the Lakers, we are giving them um a pretty good a chance to repeat. We give them 21% odds. They're one of four teams with double-digit chances. Jeff, how are the the Lakers looking going into the season? They did make some changes in the offseason. Yeah, I think most people think they got better. They they got the... The two guys who were first and second in in sixth-man voting, um, uh, you know, as in the best bench player, in Montrez Harrell, who won it for the Clippers, and Dennis Schroeder, who is effectively replacing Rondo. So uh, most people see those as an upgrade. They obviously lost Dwight Howard. Um, Marcus Gasol comes in, which will help them defensively. 
I think overall it's not adding, it's not the Warriors adding Kevin Durant by any stretch, but it's definitely a team that got better. One comparison I saw, which I, I tend to agree with, was comparing them to the uh, 2012-13 Heat, which was off the first title, LeBron's third, likewise LeBron's third year on on a new team, uh, one year removed from his first title on that team. Um, who added uh, Ray Allen and the Birdman and a few other players. And most people think going into that year, they they had gotten even a little better. Yeah. Well, I mean, also, you know, they are the favorites, like you said, Sarah, at 21%. This is not necessarily a return to the era of like, we've had years where the Warriors, in fact, probably most of the years during their dynasty, they were at least 30% going into the season to win the championship. If not darn close to 50%. I think there were times in which they would have been sort of an even money pick versus the field uh, to to win the championship at the height of like the KD, you know, uh, basketball machine. So in in that sense, it's a little bit the same as it was last year in, in the way that, you know, there's four teams that have double digit odds. And the favorite only is at 21%, as good as the Lakers looked at the end of uh, at the playoffs last year and, and how they got better, like you said, Jeff. It's still, you know, more wide open than we're kind of, we, we've been used to. And, and another reason to get excited about this season is there is that uncertainty, even though the Lakers do look really good on paper. Well, and that's sort of, you know, we won't know there's this assumption that the Lakers are obviously going to make the playoffs. So we're talking about their odds of winning the title. So, you know, it's sort of this thing with every year with the NBA where it's like, all right, this, the regular season is starting, like wake me up when we get to the playoffs. But I do think there's more, there is a little bit more. So the, the, the teams at the top, we're waiting to see how they do in the playoffs far far from now. But there are a lot of other teams that are interesting in that sort of middle tier. So getting back to to Jay Adande's point, our, our model gives the the Phoenix Suns a 74% chance of making the playoffs. Are the teams that have taken this, like, let's just try to be a little better approach being rewarded in our model? Or are they just sort of, you know, overshadowed by the big guns. Neil, how competitive does the model think the league is this year? Well, I mean, I I think beyond looking at the top uh, four and the kind of increased parity there, obviously when you have those odds that are lower than usual for the top teams, they kind of have to go somewhere. And so, you know, the Suns are at 3% to win the championship. The Mavericks are at 3%. By the way, I loved... JA's point that's something that I've kind of been on the bandwagon for for a long time is that idea of why not aim for you know being like pretty good you know try to get to the second round and see what happens and we saw the heat I mean the heat are kind of a textbook example of that Uh, our model doesn't like them all that much to repeat as Eastern Conference champs we only give them an 8% chance of doing that but that that was like a godsend for people that uh, advocated for this idea of, yeah, you get a superstar, you get Jimmy Butler, but then, you know, you build through the draft. You try to find these steals in the second round or undrafted players and and just try to kind of build up a, a core level of competence uh, on your roster, a lot of depth, and see where it takes you. And if, if it caps out in the second round, you know, that's something to build from. Yes, you won't get, you know, a very impressive draft pick. But again, you know, uh, you're 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 not really building, you know, like if the alternative is 
having like the number seven pick or something like that. You know, unless you do a full blown tank, you're really not going to get one of those like number one, number two, whatever picks unless you get lucky in the lottery. So are you really any more likely to grab a superstar with like the number seven or number eight or number nine pick or something like that? Then, you know, barring luck, then you are if you draft a little bit later, but maybe did something interesting in the playoffs. Like, I don't know. I feel like the distribution of, uh, of players in the draft is so stacked toward like the number one pick or maybe the top two picks. Uh, and it falls off so quickly after that, that it it does kind of make sense now to aim for that, like be pretty good, see what happens, roll the dice with it. And, and I think we've also seen teams like that be able to maybe lure some, better players maybe free agents down the line like say phoenix builds off of what they did last year and looks even better this year maybe they could convince somebody to come there and and join up with devin booker and you know that that young core that they have and there you've kind of executed the rebuild i mean the suns are an interesting team anyway because they're like this is hard to remember but they are only two years away from having the number one pick like this is DeAndre Ayton's third year in the league is all when he was the number one pick in that draft so like you know he's 22 so they're still they haven't moved on from that initial build like I think I I'm not sure we have a good sense of how long that takes like we want players to come in and immediately change completely change a team and change the fortunes of a team and that does not really seem possible. I mean, individual players can change NBA teams like and they, in ways that they can't do that in other sports that individual players can't do in other sports. But still it takes a little bit of time to build around a player and to build a, a you know, an actual championship contender. I mean, Zion Williamson didn't come in and immediately change the Pelicans also he was hurt. But it does. Well, so was Aiden. I mean, Aiden's been, you know, in and out of the lineup too, and only played 38 games last year. He was arguably not really. I mean, he played well, uh, especially according to Raptor, but he was not the primary driving force behind their resurgence. Yeah. Okay. Let's not make predictions for who's going to win it all because they'd just be like, the Lakers. I don't know. Um, Let's. let's, Was that me? You can form your own No comment. Let's take a team that is not one of the top four that you think could have a chance at winning it all. I'll go first. I'll go first. I'll go first because I usually go last. I have one. Don't take mine. All right. I the Mavericks. I think. oh, you took mine, Sarah. <laughs> that was everybody's. <laughs> oh, that was everybody's. Well, that was uh, easy then. Yeah, the Mavs. We have at three percent to win to win the finals. We act interestingly. We have them at only seventy three percent to make the playoffs, below the Suns by one percentage point, um, which I found interesting. Um, you know, the the team changed a little bit in the off season. Got rid of Seth Curry, got Josh Richardson. Um, Christoph Przingis is hurt again, but should be back before too long. I don't know. Luca is getting In theory. S- right. Luca I- Doncic is getting such like MVP love, and yet the team eh, we don't know. We don't know how they're going to be. So I, I'm, I'd be, I'll be very interested in them. I think they might go farther than our model thinks they will go. I like that pick. Yeah, I mean, that was my pick. So There's a reason I don't I normally go first, like, but this time I did. Yeah, you jumped on that one. 
<laughs> yeah, that was cheating. Um, for now, let's take a quick break and we'll be back in a moment for one last rant about college football. Last week, we talked a little bit about what might pressure the college football playoff committee to make a surprising choice for its top four teams and why they probably wouldn't surprise anyone. Well, they didn't. (laughs) Even after Clemson handed Notre Dame their shamrock (laughs) over the weekend during the ACC championship and Ohio State looked lackluster for much of its Big Ten championship game, the four playoff teams for 2020 are Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, and Notre Dame. On the KJZ show, ESPN College Football analyst David Pollack acknowledged the committee's almost farcical repetition in its selection choices, but he argued that even with an expanded playoff, the outcome might be the same. Like, it's Groundhog's Day every year, and I'm reminded of that every championship weekend, and I, and I do want to expand, and I, I have my own philosophy of what I want to do and how I want to expand, but I just, in the end, you might get the same result. You still might get Alabama and Clemson, but I think you get so many more people involved in the engaged in the, in the playoff system and less opt-outs and more, more give-a-dang as opposed to some of the kids down the stretch that don't really care because they're not necessarily playing for a championship. But Alabama and Clemson, listen, look at the recruiting rankings every year. They're always near the top. Look at the, the quarterback position. They always coach that exceptionally well and have great guys at that spot and great dudes all over the field that they coach up and that make great. So Clemson and Alabama, again, here we go. It does feel like that, round 36. So, yes, it is a little like Groundhog's Day every year. Alabama and Clemson are, are very good teams, obviously. But that's not why everyone is mad at the committee. There seems to have been, in college football and in the coverage of college football, this determination for things to be as normal as possible, even though there was no way this season was going to be normal. Neil, was there any way that the committee or, or any of the groups that put out ratings or rankings could have adjusted their process this year to account for 2020? Or is this Groundhog's Day scenario the sort of inevitable result of everyone playing through so much uncertainty? Well, I do think they could have expanded the playoff. And I know that, yeah, it wouldn't fix everything. But we've talked about this time and again that um, if any year justified expanding to a six team, an eight team, a 10 team, a 12 team playoff, any of those. Just eight team. All you have to say is eight team. Eight would be great, uh, and you get the auto bids and all that. Yeah, let's make that the motto for going forward. Um, eight would be great. But, yeah, I, I do think that that is the one change they could have made to account for 2020. And then you could have accommodated all of the weird, like, special circumstances that everything is kind of revolving around this year, like you've got the Ohio State situation where they didn't play enough games, which, by the way, I love the Dabo Sweeney shade that he threw where he's like, yeah, we're going to review the tape from Ohio State's season this year. Not as many games as uh, you usually have to go through when looking at an opponent. Probably about half those games. So it's going to make life easier for me. I he's like this. He's such a troll. Dabo. He's like, become <laughs> college football's resident troll. But like, good for him. Ma- he has a point. Matters. He like, has a matter. point on this. Yes, he has, he a, has point. a point. He definitely has a point. So, uh, yeah, I think that a larger playoff could have accommodated the 6-0, and the Ohio State uh, Buckeyes, uh, while also giving a chance to, like, it could have been a big tent, not the Big Ten, the big tent, <laughs> uh, to, to kind of bring together all of the different circumstances that the teams are playing under because it is so weird this year. But short of that, I don't know what they could have done. I mean, they, they should have put less emphasis on 
pedigree uh, and they should have been consistent. Well, yeah. And you think about, I mean, you know, if you expanded the playoffs, the playoff to six teams, what what were the other two teams that would have made it in? Texas A&M and Oklahoma. Well, Texas A&M, I think, certainly. But yeah, Oklahoma. What, Cincinnati. They, they wanted, the committee wanted to put a Big 12 team in. I mean, you could tell that by, look, as listeners of this podcast should be aware, I went to Iowa State and I love the Cyclones. The Cyclones going into that Big 12 title game were not the sixth best team in the country. I love them. They are wonderful. They were not the sixth best team. There's there's no way they should have been number six. And Oklahoma also not very good. Oklahoma had a worse loss than Iowa State. Iowa State, like, you know, lost to Louisiana famously at the beginning of the season. I would argue that it was famous. We do remember that. Well, Louisiana is better than Kansas state who Oklahoma lost to. And, and so you're looking at this Oklahoma team and they don't deserve to be there at all. But the, the, the the committee wanted to put the big 12 champion into the playoff. If they could have figured out a way to do that. So they still would have screwed over Cincinnati. There's no question. I think if you, if you, if you got to eight teams, they might still screw over Cincinnati. Like, Oh, sorry. You're number Cincinnati was the eighth. Yeah. They were eighth in the ranking ahead of Georgia. It's not that that much of a stretch to see Georgia flip that uh, and get in and don't even get started. You need a 12 team playoff to get coastal Carolina and based on the final rankings. Okay, so so if we could just wave a magic wand and put who we wanted to put in the playoff and take out who we wanted to take out of the playoff, Jeff, who should be in this four-team playoff? Here's the irony of ironies. <laughs> I agree with everything Neil said. It is a farce. Everything. I agree with yeah. everything you said, Sarah. It is a ridiculous system um, by a committee with ulterior motives. I think they might have got the four best teams. That is the irony. Okay. I I can't make a really strong case for Texas A&M, for Florida, for, I I mean, Cincinnati, I I feel like really got shafted. At least in those rankings, that's an insult just to put them down at eight where they did everything they were supposed to do. And, and, uh, you know, a group of five conference, but what is considered the best group of five conference right. um, and, and really passed every test that was pre- presented. And if you watch that team play, they're legit good. I mean, I don't know if they're going to be Georgia. They probably won't. I think Georgia's actually quite good. I think Georgia's a team that, to me, is not that much different than Texas A&M, to be honest. But, it, you know, to answer your question, the answer to this question probably every year is, a few more SEC teams because I do think they are a dominant conference and I do think they cannibalize each other even below um, Alabama. You know, I, I think Florida, Texas A&M and, and Georgia, I'll throw them in there. A team that, you know, they lost to Florida. They lost to Alabama, um, which is the only difference between them and Texas A&M is Texas A&M beat Florida at the last second and got trucked by Alabama. Otherwise, they kind of have the same resume. Also, Georgia changed their quarterback, JT Daniels, now the quarterback, and they've looked a lot better. Granted, they haven't played very good teams, but I, they were getting really bad quarterback play early in the year, and they've kind of fixed that. Um, side note about Georgia, no one's saying they should be in the playoff. Um, but I, I don't know if Texas A&M should be. <laughs> Except Georgia fans. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. You know, you take away that Florida win, and Florida, you know, who 
lost to LSU, who's bad. You know, they, they beat well, Auburn. Okay. In a, they, but they're not. They lost to LSU because, I mean... Well, All right, so we're just saying that shoe. was a uh, because of a shoe. It's so true. And it a is look true. ahead spot. I mean, sure, but they still lost. LSU sure. is terrible this year. Sure. They totally. shouldn't lose to LSU. They were huge favorites. Of course not. They definitely should not have lost to LSU. And no they one should is not saying... have been inside the margin of shoe error. Yeah, no, I agree. Yes, <laughs> the margin of shoe error. Agree, but we're not, we're not talking about Florida making it in. We're talking about a team that beat Florida not making it in in Texas A&M. I mean, A&M. if you look at... Texas A&M's only loss is to Alabama. Notre Dame's only loss is to Clemson. The loss from Texas A&M to Alabama is much better than the loss of Notre Dame to Clemson. Notre Dame looked terrible against Clemson. Yeah. Let's be honest. But, but, so so Texas A&M lost to Alabama 52-24. to Notre Dame will lose to Alabama fifty-two to twenty-four in uh, the Notre playoff semifinal. Well, I mean, yeah, they will, they'll lose uh, fifty-two to four. Okay, <laughs> two safeties. Four, four. <laughs> this is this is fun because now you're going to make the Michigan fan have to defend both Ohio yes. State and, and Notre, Notre Dame. Dame. Great, this is our, this Notre is my Dame. favorite. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, first of all, the UNC team they beat at UNC, mm-hmm. not like at matters that much this year, was a a very good team. I, they have an excellent offense, and they I, compl- they completely shut them down in the second half. Look at what that that North Carolina team did to Miami. Absolutely blew them out of the water. To I, I a Miami that has looked worse and worse as the okay, season has but gone on. Still, I'm just a quality saying. team that only had one loss going in. They they blew them out. Okay, so that that win in what the defense was able to do again against that North Carolina team in the second half was was impressive. Also. I know Trevor Lawrence is, you know, the golden god that all the Jets fans are crying about. They still beat a very good... They put 47 points up against Clemson the first time. Also, the guy playing quarterback for Clemson in that game is a five-star recruit. He was the number one quarterback in his class. He could be a Heisman contender next year. Um, We're going to go back... History will look back on that game and be like, oh, wow, he played in that game. And I mean, it it was it was still a quality win. I know Lawrence wasn't there, but you can't just write it off completely because of that. Um, And and other you take away an ACC championship game, which, you know, if it's a normal Notre Dame season, they're not even playing in Um, and their resume is solid. So I'm not saying it's it's a clear cut choice, but I don't think it's like a big outrageous controversy that they got picked over Texas A&M. And with Ohio State, I think Ohio State's good. I, you know, this is a weird year. And, you know, if it was another team in the Big Ten, if it was, you know, Minnesota or Michigan State or someone, they obviously, obviously wouldn't have got the benefit of the doubt. But it's a great program. But what are we doing talking about the the the, the history of the program that it's a good program? Like no, if just, they haven't looked good this year, they haven't played that great this year. Then why why did they get that benefit of the doubt? Because they're a good team. And look, they they, ha- they haven't lost a game. They did win all their games. I know it wasn't pretty against Northwestern in the beginning. Northwestern has a good defense. They still. You know, it wasn't that close in the end. And but you're you know, not ending. saying that the Big Ten is good, right? <laughs> I never <laughs> think the Big Ten is good. Right. But so then, what do those wins four worth? Four SEC teams in. This is the same debate every year. Okay. You okay. Okay. Just put four SEC teams in. No, of course I don't want to do that. But I am trying. If okay. you put Texas A&M against Notre Dame, who wins that game? 
I'm seeing Notre Dame. Well, one second. Really? I don't think so. I don't. Either. I do. I don't think Texas A&M's that good. I mean, I, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm. Congratulations on beating Arkansas and Tennessee and Vanderbilt by five points. They beat <laughs> Vanderbilt by five points. Can we talk about that for a minute? <laughs> that was everyone angry. else beats Vanderbilt by fifty points. <laughs> My goodness. <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying. I don't. I don't get it. Like, yes, one loss, but you know, they, they had they had games against Ole Miss canceled. They had games against. Uh, uh, they ended up playing the Tennessee game, but you know that they, they easily could have lost one of those games. It was close against Arkansas. It was close Wait, to a lot of their so, games. So you want to not count losses that maybe happened because of a shoe, but you want to count losses not, that didn't happen. I'm just but saying. Could have. My only point is, I I don't think they got it very wrong this year, and. I think these arguments we're having, we will literally have every year until they change the format. So this circle back right. to how I preface this, <laughs> I think Neil and you are right. It's a flawed, terrible system that needs to change. I, but I'm was, not saying this year's any different than any previous year. This was all the, except for the wrinkle with Ohio State not having only having six games. This was all just a, a ruse. I don't to know get, how you're supposed to handle. This was all just a ruse to get you on the podcast talking about how great Ohio State is. I know and we it's can play terrible, this back for years and But years. I'm also a guy who watches this team beat Michigan by 40 points every year, except and, this year, and they would have done it this year. <laughs> oh, so let's just go ahead and imagine that that would have happened. I, I think I just I think you know we we bristle all the time at the eye test, but I got to tell you that I'm struggling this year with what we're seeing on the field based versus what ratings are telling us. I mean, you know, ESPN's Football Power Index is a is a rating we use all the time to talk about what how good these teams are, and we rely on it when we can't see teams face each other. FPI has the three and three Wisconsin Badgers as the eighth best team in the country. And that is madness. We just don't well, know enough about these teams, especially the teams in the Big Ten. That is complete madness. And I would go as far to say nonsense. Because <laughs> Wisconsin Whoa. is awful. Yeah. They have they... literally no offense. <laughs> Graham Mertz look terrible. They're, they're a bad team. I, I don't understand that at all. Um, so I'm not going to defend that. In the and slightest. we should, I mean, we should say that they are lower in uh, the efficiency rankings at uh, ESPN. They're they're still twenty fourth, uh, but um, it's on the strength of that defense. Anyway, and I'm not here to defend all they, that. Look at how why they have Penn State. What is what Penn State's up there? Right. Well, I don't even want to see Penn State's name on the first page. And so this is the problem, you know. So so like so we at five thirty eight, we did not put out a college football playoff predictor this year for a lot of reasons, but mostly because we thought the season would be too unpredictable to do justice to. And, and I, we weren't I, even I, sure I there would be a that. season. Right. Exactly. But you know, we do have ratings and, and rankings. And then of course we do have the playoff committee because this was something that we were just going to go forward with and do as, as a sport. Were the ratings useful to bringing some order to this or was it just like muddying the waters, Neil? So I, I, you can't pin this on the ratings, but I do. We talked about this before the season that it was impossible to judge teams against each other across conferences. There's just no way. Like for instance, if you look at the simple rating system at Sports Reference, which we love, 
we use it all the time uh, to judge teams in every sport. All it is, I mean, it's it's simple for a reason. All it is is just schedule adjusted point differential, and it finds the rating for every team that sort of best aligns with the actual results of games that happen. But in order to do that, you need connectivity outside like every conference cannot be a closed bubble unto itself or else you get results where for instance the mid-american conference is rated roughly the same in terms of its average srs as the sec do we think the mac and the sec are equivalent to each other uh but the reason is they they didn't play outside of their conferences uh and you get a lot of that where it, it, on the occasion one team played one non-conference game. The only non-conference game for the Pac-12, for instance, was a Colorado game against someone from the Mountain West. I've forgotten who it even was. But basically, like everything about the relative value of those two conferences hinges in a system like the SRS, hinges on the result of one game because that's the only out of sample result that you have, you know, out of conference sample uh, that that you use to kind of infer the quality of every other conference relative to each other. So that was going to be impossible this year. And there's a lot that goes into the football power index that is beyond that. Uh, they they use recruiting rankings and preseason, you know, uh, estimates of talent and this, that, and the other. Uh, and so. You know, that's how you end up with Alabama being the number one team in the country. Okay, that's, you know, defensible. Ohio State number two, then Clemson, and then Georgia. I mean, I, uh, to what you said, Jeff, Georgia is good from like a talent perspective. It, it was always going to be impossible to judge off of stats, but I'm not sure stats were ever used to judge these things or even justify yeah. these things. And maybe we're taking it a little overboard in terms of, certainly for myself and the Notre Dame bashing. Like, there is a universe in which it's totally defensible to put Notre Dame, who went 10-1, and and yes, they had a win over Clemson without Trevor Lawrence, and yes, the backup is still good, and yes, they scored a lot of points on a defense that teams don't tend to score a lot of points on. There's some universe where they deserved it, but at the same time, from just a... It feels so hollow, and it feels, frankly, like, just awful to have a Notre Dame team that proved... Pretty much beyond a shadow of a doubt, it's not the best team in the country uh, and just got boat raced by Clemson to put them right back in to steal a spot from some other team that could have potentially maybe just given us something different. I'm not saying they'd give us something better, but something different. Does your opinion change if actually this will happen after the playoffs, so it'll be moot? Uh, but if North Carolina beats A&M, do you transitively think maybe Notre Dame was a better case than a and I mean, yes, although there's obviously a lot goes that goes into, like, do teams get up for... The motivation for the, factors. Yeah, right, but yeah. yeah, I do think that, that that would... I mean, if Texas A&M beats Notre Dame by 20, then my, my take Carolina. will only get North stronger. Carolina. That's North what I meant, Carolina. sorry. If, yeah, if Texas especially A&M, if Notre Dame gets blown out, yeah. Well, how about if Notre Dame keeps it within three touchdowns against Bama? How about that? I would three be impressed. Touchdowns. I would be impressed. <laughs> Oof. All right. Well, we, we we continue to have lots of thoughts about the college football playoff, and I assume always will. But we can leave this here for now. We'll be back in a moment for our rabbit hole of the week. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of those descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. 
What do you have for us, Neil? Well, as I'm sure everyone listening knows by now, last week, Major League Baseball made a big announcement. They announced that the Negro Leagues, a collection of seven segregation-era leagues that were formed because black players were excluded from MLB and its affiliates, would now formally be considered major leagues going forward. That means that approximately 3,400 players who played from 1920 to 1948 will now have their accomplishments and statistics recognized officially by Major League Baseball. This was a long overdue step, uh, particularly toward correcting this racist omission made by the Baseball Special Records Committee back in 1968, which was responsible for codifying which leagues qualify as major, aside from the AL and the NL. And they bestowed that status upon four leagues aside from the AL and NL, but never even considered the Negro Leagues as a candidate for that status at all. Now, aside from outright prejudice, supposedly the rationale involved the Negro League sometimes irregular schedules and incomplete record keeping, although that was a product of the players being excluded from the larger world of white baseball and MLB's more organized hierarchical leagues. So the argument essentially creates a cycle of discrimination that we can never recognize the great black players of that era now because they went unrecognized back then. And we should also dispense with any notion that they might have had at the time that Negro League players were not of MLB caliber ability-wise. There's a great story by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer over the summer about this push to recognize Negro Leaguers as major leaguers, which included some numbers from when Negro League teams would play exhibitions against all white teams composed of at least some, if not all, major league players. And the results speak very loudly. So the black teams won 52.7%. Of those games, which would equate to about 85 wins per 162. For comparison's sake, minor league teams also played exhibitions against MLB teams, and they won only 28.6% of those games, or 46 wins per 162, over the same time frame. And also, black teams won 56.8% of their games against AAA competition, all of which suggests that the Negro Leagues were of a vastly higher skill level than other leagues that have been excluded from major league consideration by that committee in 1960. 68. Going beyond that, 37 Hall of Famers played in the Negro League circuit, or nearly 15% of all Hall of Fame players ever. It's a list that includes Jackie Robinson, Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, Ernie Banks, and many more. Satchel Paige starred in the Negro Leagues, and then he was an MLB All-Star at the age of 46. He also pitched his last game at age 59, which is pretty incomprehensible. Uh, In the wake of MLB's announcement, the point has been well made that this move cannot and should not be able to fully atone for the crime of segregated baseball, much as MLB would like to forget that that ever happened. Larry Ty, who wrote Page's biography, had a really interesting story in the New York Times over the weekend about the difficulty of suddenly including statistics from leagues that, at the time, couldn't afford the level of record-keeping that MLB enjoyed and also went mostly ignored by the white press. Because of those limitations, Page actually took it upon himself to keep a detailed almanac of all the games he pitched, complete with his stats, and, of course, how much of the gate receipts he pocketed uh, <laughs> in each game. you gotta got to keep your eye on that. Uh, Page's hand written notebooks really underscore how different the data fidelity might be between different players, between stars and and you know more uh, average players in different leagues. And that's going to be a messy aspect of MLB's legacy here, no matter how much it really wants to atone for its history with a press release. 
But fortunately, in regard to the data collection, a group of historians have been working tirelessly on reconstructing Negro League data over the past three decades. Thanks to people like Larry Lester, who co-founded the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City, and this group of the Seamheads Research Group led by Gary Ashwell, who have poured over countless old scorebooks, newspaper box scores, and they've really built this statistical record that is almost complete. It's something like 80 to 85 percent complete and it's growing all the time. They just added to it in the last month. Now, that doesn't mean that there won't be arguments over which statistics are and are not included as part of this process of making them official. As part of the announcement last week, MLB and the Elias Sports Bureau, the official record keeper of Major League Baseball, have begun consulting with historians, other experts to review exactly how this is going to work, and in particular, what to do about qualifications for rate statistics, which could actually have a pretty huge impact on some of our well-known and beloved all-time records. MLB's Mike Petriello did a deep dive into where Negro Leaguers might rank in the all-time record books, which I'd encourage all the listeners to read. For instance, Josh Gibson, widely known as the Negro League's answer to Babe Ruth, the greatest hitter uh, of, of that circuit, he hit 466 in 1943 over 69 regular season games, actually longer than the 2020 season. Uh, if it counts, and it should count because... Uh, we should note that uh, both of the both leagues batting title winners in 2020 had fewer plate appearances than Josh Gibson did that year. It would break Hugh Duffy's all-time single season batting average record of 440, which was set back in 1894. And it would also make him and not Ted Williams, the last major leaguer to hit 400 in a season. Uh, Josh Gibson's 361 career average would also slide him into second on the all-time career list, ahead of Rogers Hornsby and slightly behind Ty Cobb. He'll probably also rank second in career OPS plus behind Babe Ruth at 200, so they would be the only players with an OPS plus of 200 or better, meaning they hit twice as well as the average hitter uh, over the course of their career. At least that's according to the number in the Seamheads database. And we might also get 24 new no-hitters, including one by a guy named Red Greer, who threw it in Game 3 of the 1926 Negro World Series. And a lot of players whose careers started out in the Negro Leagues will get extra stats. Guys like Page... Robinson, Mays, Larry Doby, Roy Campanella. Uh, so there's going to be a lot of joy in adding these new stats. I actually really can't wait to just pour over them and put them in my spreadsheets and, and my data sets. And, and there's going to be a lot of joy in celebrating players whose careers were overlooked for too long. There's also going to be growing pains in sort of managing the incompleteness of the data and trying to decide what does count, what should count, what shouldn't. And there will be the recognition that while this decision was a long time coming, it should not gloss over baseball's original sin, which was its decision to exclude players over the color of their skin. But at least it is a step toward fairness for a group of players who could not find enough of that during their careers. I I think you make a, such a good point there about the growing pains involved in this. And I really want baseball fans to, like, you know, baseball fans hold on to records and can recite them and 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 think about them and it, they're debated all the time. We we you know going into this last weird truncated season we talked about oh what if someone hits over 400 how will people react will that be a big thing of course it would have been a big thing. It didn't happen and hitting is 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 way down so it was fine. Um but but I think that we're going to have to really consciously make an effort to let go of some of that. Um because a those records aren't magical. 
they aren't they 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 don't have to like foreground our appreciation of the sport and b they were always not true like the I, the fact that we're finally acknowledging the negro leagues as part of a major league doesn't mean that Josh Gibson wasn't always really really good it was just meant that that white baseball was able to ignore him so so holding on to Ted Williams is not going to be good for our like let's not do that let's not like let's not hold on to that and and ignore someone's contributions any longer than we already have you know neil it's interesting i'm just trying to like i'm so fascinated by that season where he batted 466 but even looking around the internet i'm seeing like different numbers left and right in terms of what he actually did that year i was curious how much he walked and according to baseball reference he only had one walk yeah, well, there probably walks were not recorded completely that in that. That can't and, be right. And then yeah. another <laughs> no, side has six to one walk. Uh, like, why are you pitching? Why are you pitching it, Josh guy? <laughs> <laughs> I like well, the idea know. of like. I wonder why that one walk was recorded. Like all the rest right. weren't. Maybe in that one. They were like, that's a special walk. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> But yeah, like that's a great point. One, we meant 50. Yeah. <laughs> that some categories are going to be incomplete for players. But that's also true of white players from the early part of the 1900s, where I don't think we had batter strikeouts until the early 19-teens uh, and so forth. So there, uh, uh, I don't think we had caught stealings until maybe after um, World War II. So again, it's another case of you know, statistics are often incomplete and we have to kind of work around through there. But the thing that's great, because as an advanced stat uh, stan, I love uh, wins above replacement, above everything else, that uh, the the folks at Seamheads have calculated wins above replacement for Negro League players. Oscar Charleston, I believe, had the greatest season by war in, in, in Negro League history. So we will have our advanced metrics. Yes. We will have our wins above replacement for, uh, for, for the new, uh, how many players did I say it was? 2,400? Uh, 3,400 new players. So awesome. I can't wait to put that in my database. I also, I want to give a plug for the Negro League Museum in Kansas City. It is one of the coolest museums I've ever been to. I really encourage once, you know, once we can, um, you know, go places and, <laughs> and travel and see and go to museums again. Um, man, if you haven't, if you love baseball and you haven't been there, you should go. Um, the museum is so incredibly cool and just shows you, um, if you love baseball, you'll really, really love it. Um, it's amazing. And until, the, until you can actually go there in person, you can also make a donation to them uh, on their website great call all right well thank you for that that was a very fun rabbit hole and that will do it for this week's show we'll be back in your feed next tuesday if you like what you heard please subscribe and if you are subscribed please rate and review us on your preferred podcast app it does help new people discover the show you can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think our podcast producer is sarah shackett tony chow is in the virtual control room and our podcast commissioner is chad matlin For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.